All right. Well, has anyone ever encountered a skunk at your house? Anyone? Anyone? Like ran into a skunk? Like two of you? Cool. Um, so here's the thing. So I encountered a skunk at my house this past summer. So I was walking out of my garage one day, and I started to smell the skunk smell. We all know what that is. And I'm like, that stinks, like literally and figuratively, because there seems like there's a skunk around. But I didn't think much about it. Got in my car and drove away. Well, the next day, I walk out of my garage, and I smell it again. And I'm like, all right, that's weird. Then the third day, I smell it again. So by like the fourth day, I'm like, I think I have a skunk living here, right, somewhere. So I start to investigate, right? I start to look around my yard, around my house, figure out where a skunk might be living. I don't know where skunks live, so I'm just looking around. And I noticed in our front porch was a hole that kind of like led under the porch. So we moved into this house, and uh, the porch that the people laid before we were there wasn't done very well, so it was kind of like falling apart when we moved in. So this cement kind of porch pad thing, and there was a hole where the cement started to decay, and it seemed like the skunk and the smell was coming from under the porch. So I wasn't about to stick my head under there and figure it out. Thought about sending my kids. That wasn't cool either. I'm like, the hole's perfect size for them, right? So I call a local company, and I'm like, hey, I think there's a skunk living out here. Can you come look at it? So they come out, and they start looking around. They look in there, and they're like, yeah, there's definitely a skunk. There's a lot of evidence left behind by the skunk, right, if you know what I mean. There's a lot of skunk there, so there's something there. So they're like, all right, so they set a trap, and they kind of block off all the other ways it could get in, and they put a trap over the one hole. And they said, yeah, he'll probably come out at night, and when he's in the trap, call us and we'll take him away. The bad news is the skunk never was in the trap, all right? So I don't know if that meant he, like, snuck out before we put the trap. He's smarter than us, but we didn't catch him. The good news is we did bulldoze the porch about three weeks later, and there's nowhere else for the skunk to go, right? So I'm hoping he got out, but if he didn't, sorry. So um, there's no more skunk problem in my house and nowhere for him to come back. So... But yeah, I tell you that story, and you're like, how does that get into the book of Luke? It does, all right? So when you get to the passage we're going to look at this morning in Luke, what you see is that the Pharisees are going to try to trap Jesus, that they are tired of him sneaking up their religion, they're tired of him messing with what they're trying to do, and so they're like, all right, we got to get rid of this guy one way or the other, so let's set a trap. Let's try to get rid of him and stop him. And so what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the setup this morning of how they tried to set up the trap, and then we're going to look at the question, because that's going to be how they trap Jesus or try, and then we're going to look at the response. So the setup, the question, and the response. That's where we're going this morning, all right? So let's dive right in with the setup, picking up in verse 19 in chapter Luke 30. The Word of God says this, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said. So as to deliver, deliver him up to the authority and the jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. So we'll stop there just for a moment. So Luke tells us that the Pharisees. They wanted to lay hands on Jesus, right? That's another way of saying they wanted to have Jesus arrested. But they knew they needed a cause, right? They can't just have him arrested for nothing. They needed to find a reason to have him arrested. And by this point, the Pharisees are already ticked off with Jesus. I mean, it's been mounting over and over. As Jesus keeps messing with their religion and messing with what they're trying to do, they're just ticked. And they're at the point, they're like, we got to get rid of this Jesus. So they devise a plan. And their plan is simple. They say, let's send some spies to Jesus, 
and let's ask him a trick question. And their hope with the trick question is that they can catch him, meaning they can catch him in something he says. Like maybe he will get tongue-tied or he'll stumble over his words or he'll accidentally say something he shouldn't. And we can point the finger and say, that's the cause. Now you're going to be arrested. We can turn him over to Rome. So that's what they wanted to do. All right, let's just acknowledge first. That's it's not a good idea, right? Like trying to trap Jesus doesn't end well, does it? Last week, you might have remembered Pastor Rick said, it's not a good idea to debate Jesus. You're going to lose. Well, you're not going to be able to catch Jesus either. But by this point, the Pharisees are just ready to get rid of him, and they're willing to try anything. Now, what's interesting is when you read this account in the book of Matthew, another gospel, we get a little more insight into what's happening here. The first thing we see is that these spies were actually like Pharisees in training. So these were like interns, like these were people who were like training to be Pharisees. They weren't full-blown Pharisees yet, but they were kind of like learning the ropes and following other Pharisees. So the Pharisees are like, hey, let's send our interns. Because if you have an intern, like just send them to all the things you don't want to do, right? So they get sent to Jesus. The other thing we learn is that there's another group in the mix, that it's not just the Pharisees trying to catch Jesus in this. And we don't see it in Luke, but you see it in the book of Matthew. And the other group that's in the mix is the Herodians. And when you understand who the Herodians are in light of who the Pharisees are, it's actually really strange that these two groups of people would come together for this particular thing. And so you're thinking, Austin, I have no idea who the Herodians are, so I don't know what you mean. Well, let me help you understand what I'm trying to say. So you got the Pharisees on one hand, right? The Pharisees were steeped in Jewish religion. Like these were people who were dedicated, devoted to God's law, so much so that they put like laws on top of God's law. So they had like laws for everything and they were just steeped in tradition and ritual and religion. They also wanted Rome to be overthrown, that they hated Rome, that Rome was oppressing them as a people. So they were constantly at odds with Rome. And they were so much dedicated to this idea of getting rid of Rome that when they read the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah, they thought that this Messiah would be this political activist, that he would come, free them from Rome, and overthrow the Roman Empire. So when this real Jesus stepped onto the scene, they were like, yeah, that's not the Jesus I thought. Like, you're a lot more, like, humble and nice. Like, we wanted this political activist, right? And he wasn't that. They wanted Rome to be overthrown. And then lastly, they had a religious agenda that was being disrupted. The main thing that Jesus was doing that was ticking them off was he was disrupting their agenda, what they wanted to do with their religion. So that's the Pharisees. But like I said, there's these Herodians in the scene, and this is what they are. These are guys who are liberal in their religion. So they were very open to different religions. They were open to mixing a bunch of religions together. They were very progressive in this area, unlike the Pharisees. Now, they loved Rome, that they served Rome. They, like, sold themselves out to Rome and said, hey, whatever you need, Rome, we're here for you. We'll advance your empire. We're here for you. And then lastly, they had a political agenda that was being disrupted by Jesus. So it wasn't religious, but they did have a political agenda that Jesus was messing with, and that ticked them off. And so these groups, very, very different, but they had one thing in common. Jesus was disrupting their agenda. One was political, one was religious, but the thing they had in common was Jesus was constantly interrupting and messing with their uh, agenda, and that was ticking them off, and that's why they combined forces to try to get rid of Jesus in this passage. Now, let me give you an illustration of maybe how they felt, all right? So let me show you a picture. This is a picture of my family. There's a recent pic there. So you'll see my son there, Zion, all right? 
And I'll just tell you this. I didn't tell this to the first two services, but someone asked, if you're wondering, is he named after like the Zion in the Bible? Absolutely not, right? That's too spiritual. He's named after the basketball player Zion. Come on, all right? So <laughs> way more important. Uh, if you ask my wife, it might be the other way. But uh, so that's my son Zion. So he is 10 months old this month. And like every 10-month-old, he has one agenda in life, and it's this. Put something in your mouth. No matter what it is, put it in your mouth and eat it, right? So it doesn't matter if it's your shoes, uh, dirt. It doesn't matter if it's toilet paper. I mean, I could give you a list. I mean, anything in our house that can fit in his mouth or barely fit in his mouth, he will try to chew on, right? And that is his agenda. So one of the things that we do as parents are we are constantly disrupting that. Like we're constantly grabbing things from his hands. We're constantly taking things out of his mouth. We're constantly saying, no, Zion, don't do that. Why? It's not because we want to make his life miserable or because we don't like him or we want to just ruin all his fun. We know what's best for him. And what's best for him is not to put everything in your mouth, right? We know that. And so we disrupt him for a purpose. We disrupt his agenda for a reason. Now, in the same way, Jesus often disrupts our agenda for a purpose. That many times we have agendas in life, we have plans in life, and it seems like Jesus is disrupting those over and over. And it's not because he hates us or because he wants to make our life miserable. No. He actually loves us and says, there is something so much better for you. I have a plan for you that doesn't even get close to the plan that you have. So he disrupts our agenda for a purpose. He's trying to get our attention. So let me give you some examples. What are some things maybe Jesus could be disrupting in your life? What agenda maybe he's disrupting because he has something better? Maybe it's your future, right? Maybe you're recently graduated from college and you have a degree and you are, here's my future. I'm going to get this job and make this much money and I'm going to work until this point. I'm going to get married and have kids and I'm going to retire. And you have your whole life planned out, but Jesus is going to disrupt that. Jesus says, maybe I want you to take another job. Maybe I don't want you to go into that field. Maybe I want to make, have, have you make less money. And he's just going to disrupt your future, not because he wants to make your future miserable or he wants to be a buzzkill. No, he has something better for you and he's disrupting your plan for a purpose, for a reason. Maybe it's your marriage, right? So Pastor Rick just talked about how marriage is tough. And I sit with couples before I marry them and, they, and I love how they always talk about, man, I can't wait to be married. It's going to be so fun and life's going to be great. And I'm like, cool. Like you could think that, but man, I promise. But you can't tell them that. They have to learn from experience, right? Like we all do. And marriage is tough. And maybe God is disrupting your marriage, not because he's trying to break it apart. No, because he wants to make it better and more healthy. But maybe he has to disrupt your view of marriage and how you're approaching your marriage because he wants to teach you something or teach you and your spouse something. Maybe it's your kids, right? If you have kids, you probably have an agenda for your kids, and if you're honest, it probably goes something like, I want them to get a really good job. Well, let's back up. I want them to go to a good college, get a degree, get a good job, make a lot of money, get a good house, make sure they live in a safe neighborhood, retire one day and have a better life than me. It's the American dream, right? We want that for our kids. But what if Jesus disrupts that? What if Jesus says, I don't want your kids to have a nice, comfortable life? What if I want them to go live in a foreign country and spread the gospel and be missionaries? That's going to disrupt your view and your agenda for your kids, but maybe that's because there's something better. Or maybe he says, I don't want your kids to live in a safe neighborhood. Maybe I want them to intentionally move into a neighborhood that's broken and hurting and crime is everywhere because I want them to be a gospel witness in that neighborhood. Maybe he's going to disrupt your view of where you want your kids to live. Maybe it's going to be a different job than you want for your kids. But here's the thing, he disrupts your agenda. Why? Because he has something better. He has a different plan. Maybe it's your money. 
right? We all have an agenda with our money. We want to save a certain amount. We want to do certain things with our money. And God says, hey, listen up. Maybe I want to disrupt all the things you have playing with your money because I want you to invest more in my kingdom. I want you to give more to the church. I want you to bless other people around you with your money. I'm going to disrupt your view of your money. Another thing it could be is work. Maybe you're comfortable in your job. But maybe there's something in you where God is disrupting that comfort. And maybe he is opening your eyes and saying, there's another job I want for you. Maybe you make less money, but maybe that new job impacts the kingdom in a different way, in a better way. And he's going to disrupt your current situation because he has something better on the other end. And then lastly, maybe it's politics. Anyone want to come up and do that one for me, please? (laughs) You can't talk about agenda without thinking politics, right? And here's the bottom line. We saw that even with the Herodians. Jesus does and will disrupt our view of politics. You probably fall into some political agenda. I don't care if you're on the left or right, Republican, Democrat. There is some political agenda you support and buy into. And let me just tell you, Jesus does not. He does not fit into our political agendas. He does not fit into one or the other. He supersedes that. And he might disrupt everything you know about politics, everything you want to believe about politics, because he says, hey, I'm not into that. I have something better. I have something greater to live for. He does not fit into our agenda, and he will disrupt even that. And so whatever agenda you have, realize at some point, Jesus is going to disrupt it. Think about the tagline of this series. This series is called Luke. This changes everything. And that is true that Jesus doesn't come and just change a part of your life. He's not here to just change a few things. He's here to change your future, your marriage, your kids, your money, work, politics. He changes every single thing. That is who he is. And so you got to know, when you have an agenda, understand God may and often will disrupt it at some point. And when that happens, you have a choice to make. You can either respond in anger and frustration and push back like the Pharisees of Herodians, or you can respond in humility and say, you know what, God, you're God, I'm not. And I believe that you're disrupting this for a reason, and I'm going to submit to that, and I'm going to obey you in whatever you want. That's the response we should have. And so getting back to our passage, what we see so far is that you've got the Pharisees and the Herodians, right? They're together. They're trying to catch Jesus. Jesus is disrupting their agenda. So now they try to trick Jesus with the question. But before they do, you might have caught it at the end of that passage. They first try to butter Jesus up. Another thing you should not try to do, right? Don't try to butter him up. They say, Jesus, they say, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God, right? What they're doing here is they are indulging in flattery. They are actually saying something they don't truly mean. They're just trying to butter Jesus up and make him feel good, right? And one commentary I read pointed this out, that gossip, right, is when you say something behind someone's back you would never say to their face, Flattery is the opposite. It's saying something to someone's face you would never say behind their back. And that is exactly what the Pharisees are doing. They are saying something to Jesus they don't truly mean. It's insincere praise. They say, teacher, you're this great teacher and you're, and you're awesome and we love you. But deep down they're like, we're just saying this because we really want to set you up for failure, right? And so they're just buttering Jesus up and that's not going to end very well for them. So that's the setup. But then there's the question. This is what they do next to try to catch Jesus. So picking it up in verse 22, this is what they ask Jesus. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? 
So it seems like this question is very simple. It seems like it's very straightforward. But when you really understand this question and you understand why they asked it, you understand that this is a loaded question, that there is so much going on with this question. And you need to understand that if you want to understand how Jesus responds. So let me give you a few thoughts about this question. The first thing is this, is this question was all about taxes, all right? And taxes was a very hot button issue for these people. That the people following Jesus was mostly Jews and the Jews hated paying taxes to Rome. And this was a topic that the moment they bring it up, people were gonna go nuts. People were gonna debate. People were gonna have issue with it. People were gonna have thoughts about it. It was a hot button issue. So for example, let me say I ask you this question. Toilet paper, over or under? (laughs) Everyone has an opinion, all right? I mean, it is crazy how passionate people are about a stinking toilet paper roll. And we learned this. We have proof, all right? So a couple weeks ago, you might have saw it on our Facebook page here at the church and Instagram. We posted it and said, let's see what our people think. Holy cow, like it blew up. Like people were going nuts, like arguing their side, like, you know, talking junk to the other people. I mean, it was an explosive issue, right? An explosive is an appropriate word, talking about toilet paper, so it's okay. I did student ministry long enough. I know how to say it, right? So, so this was a hot-button issue, and, they, and he knew that. And so Jesus is getting asked a question that the Pharisees knew. Hey, the moment we ask this question, everyone's going to have an opinion, and everyone's going to be up in arms. So let's ask him this question, because it's going to be a real hot-button one, right? And the reason the, the Jews hated paying taxes to Rome, because in their mind, they thought paying money to Rome, this pagan government, these pagan leaders, they couldn't see how that related to their faith, right? They said, okay, if we're believers and we follow this God, how do we pay money to people that don't? And so for them, it was this compromise of their faith, or it was going to contradict God's lordship over them as his people. So they hated paying taxes. And it was this issue that actually led to the zealot movement. And that was a movement of Jews that outright opposed Rome. They constantly was trying to overthrow Rome, and it was all because of things like taxes. And so when you understand that, you realize, okay, this is actually a very smart question to ask Jesus. Another thing about the question you need to know, though, is it was a lose-lose situation, that Jesus could not win, no matter how he answered this question. Because here's what's going to happen, is the Pharisee says, okay, if he answers this way, no, you don't have to pay taxes then at that moment, they have a cause to have him arrested. Because at that moment, they can turn him over to Rome and say, hey, Rome, there's this guy trying to turn people against you. He's causing an uprising. They can arrest him. And that's what they wanted. That was their goal. But then they thought, well, hold on. What if Jesus says, yes, you should pay your taxes? Well, now we can't have him arrested because Rome's going to be like, thanks, bud. Appreciate it, right? But they do realize this. The people following him are probably not going to listen to him anymore. He's going to lose some influence. He's going to lose credibility because in their mind, he's now siding with the enemy. So they're not going to listen to him. So they realize, hey, this is a lose-lose. No matter what Jesus says, we win. He loses. So let's ask him this question. So for an example, let me say I ask you this question. Did you tell the IRS you cheated on your taxes? Don't answer that out loud, please, all right? But so public reminder, if you haven't done your taxes, you should probably do them now. So remember that. But if I ask you that question, no matter how you answer it, you're going to admit to lying. If you say, no, I haven't told him I cheated, so you did cheat. Or you say, oh yeah, I've told him, so you did cheat. Like either way, you're telling me you cheated, right? You're losing that situation. And that's the exact same question that Jesus was being put into, right? A lose-lose 
situation. But it's interesting to see how Jesus responds. Because he responds in a way that's very interesting, a way that they didn't expect and in a way that we might not expect. And so let's look at his response together. He picks it up. He continues in verse 23. But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, show me a denarius whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him and what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. So Jesus, seeing right through their flattery, seeing right through the trick question, he's going to respond in a way that they're not expecting. He's going to respond by like sort of answering their question, but more importantly, he's going to call them to something that's greater than taxes, that's greater than government. And so he does this. He starts by saying, hey, pull out a denarius. And I have a picture of what a denarius would have looked like. And you see there, the denarius has an image of Caesar. So he says, hey, hey, this denarius you have, whose image is it? Caesar's. And so he says, all right, give to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's. See, because for the, the Jews or anyone living in Rome, they would have to pay this tax. Rome did a lot of different things with taxes, but one of the ones they always had people do was pay a poll tax. And this is what they would have used to pay it. And it was simply a tax that you had to pay, including the Jews, to simply exist in Rome. Everyone had to pay it. And so he says, pull out this coin. He says, look at the image at Caesar's. Okay, give it to Caesar's. It belongs to him. And that's when he says, so render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and God the things that are God. So he says, yes, pay your taxes. But then he says this, I have something more important for you to think about. It's not all about paying your taxes or not. What's more importantly is this. Give yourself totally to God. Give everything that belongs to God to him. So he's calling them to something that's greater. And it says that they walked away stunned. They didn't know how to respond. They couldn't get their head around what Jesus was telling them to do. And so what I want us to do for the rest of our time is I want to make sure we understand what Jesus is calling us to do. Because his response when he says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's, he has something he is trying to teach us. And I don't want us to miss it like the Pharisees missed it. So there's two things. The first one is this. Jesus is telling us that there are two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. And we as his followers currently live in both. So if you are a follower of Christ, if you've placed your faith in Jesus and you believed in the death, burial, and resurrection, if you've done that, You've been transferred from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of God. That is where your citizenship lies, the Bible says. But until Jesus comes back, you also currently live in the kingdom of man, meaning the world right here. And you can't just ignore that. There is responsibility and things you have to do in the kingdom of man until Jesus comes back. And so what Jesus is doing in this first part of his response is he is affirming the institution of the state. He is affirming that government is something given to us by God and it has a divine purpose. We know that from Romans chapter 13, that government comes from God, he sets it up, and it has a purpose. Now what Jesus isn't doing, you got to hear me, is he is not saying government is perfect. By no means does God think that government is this perfect solution to the affairs of the kingdom of the world. He knows it's not. He knows that everything, because of the fall, is stained by sin and corrupted by sin, including the government. So yes, he's affirming it, but he's not saying it's perfect. One guy said it like this. He sums it up nicely. This was a former chaplain of the U.S. Senate. He says, to be sure, 
Men will abuse and misuse the institution of the state, just as men have abused and misused every other institution in history, including the church of Jesus Christ. But this does not mean that the institution is bad or that it should be forsaken. It simply means that men are sinners and rebels in God's world, and this is the way they behave with good institutions. So Jesus is affirming the state, yes, he is not saying the state's perfect. He knows every institution, whether that's family, government, church, whatever it is, is stained by sin. So what do we do with that? As people living in our modern culture, what do we do with this first part of the response? And there's a few things. One thing is this, is that we should be good citizens and we should do our civic duties. That as followers of Christ, one of the ways we represent his kingdom, one of the ways we're his witnesses on this earth is we are, we are good citizens, right? We obey the law, we pay our taxes, we vote, we do all of our civic duties. That is a good thing that we should do. That's why it says, give to Caesars the thing that is his, right? We are good citizens. But even in being good citizens, this is the second thing, is we need to realize there's limitations to the state. There is a limit of what government can and what government should do. And we got to understand that as kingdom, as people that belong to the kingdom of God, we do not put our hope and our security and our peace and our salvation in the hands of government. Right? It doesn't matter who's in office. It doesn't matter what laws are passed. Our hope, our security, our peace as followers of Christ never lies in the hand of a human institution. It never does. It lies in the kingdom of God. And so, yes, we are good citizens. Yes, we do our civic duties. But we realize at the end of the day that government does not fix our problem, that government does not bring us true peace. It doesn't bring us true healing. It doesn't bring us salvation. Only the king and the kingdom of God does that. And we need to understand that because we live in a culture where we just feel like, man, if the right laws get passed or the right people get in office, if the right things line up in government, we're good. Things are going to be great. It's not. Because hope, peace, security, all those things we long for as humans, the things that only God can give, they do not come from the state. The state is not meant to give us those things. Only God and his kingdom can. And so, yes, we should be good citizens, but no, we should not put our hope in the state because we will be let down. And that leads to the third thing, is that sometimes as believers, we have to resist the government. We have to disobey the state. And we do that whenever the state or whenever the government tells us to do something differently than what the Bible does. If we are caught upon to do something that goes against God and his word, we as Christians, we don't side with the government. We don't side with whatever the law is. We, recite, we, we, we obey what the Bible says, right? We obey what God says. That wins every single time. So yes, we're good citizens. Yes, we realize there's limitations. And yes, sometimes that means we disobey. And when God says, give to Caesar the things that are his, that's what he's calling us to do. But it's the second part of his response where the rubber meets the road. Because he says, give to God the things that are God's. And what he means by this is this, is that God wants us to give him everything. God expects, God demands, God is asking us to give him every single thing in our lives. It says, everything that belongs to God goes to God. What's everything? Everything, right? Everything belongs to God. Everything in your life, every little thing, from the smallest thing to the biggest thing, everything in this world, including the government, including that earthly kingdom, everything belongs to God. So we should submit it to him. We should give it to him. And there's something Jesus is doing that's very clever, and you might miss it. 
But think back to that denarius for a moment. The image on that denarius, that was Caesar. And in that time, whosoever image was on something, that signified ownership. So because that coin had Caesar on it, it belongs to Caesar. And what God wants us to see is this. We as humans, we bear his image. We bear God's image. The Bible says we are created in the image of God, meaning we are created differently than the rest of creation, that we have the capacity to have a relationship with God. No other part of creation can claim that. And it also means that we are called upon to bear God's image to the world. We are his image bearers. We are marked by his image. And Jesus says because of that, just like that coin belongs to Caesar because it has its image, guess what? You belong to God because you mark or you have his mark. You have his image. Your life is not your own. Your, the things in your life are not your own. You don't own those things. God does. God owns your very life and every single thing in it. And Jesus says, that is what I want you to get. Pharisees, I know you can't get it because you're so focused on paying taxes or not. He says, that's fine. Pay your taxes. But this, give yourself totally to God including your very self. That's what matters at the end of the day. And so what I want to encourage you to do is this. As we sing this last song, I want to encourage you to do two things. First, I want you to think about what area of your life are you holding back from God, right? Like I said, you are marked by his image, meaning everything in your life belongs to him. But if we're honest, we would probably admit that there are things in our life that we're holding back, that we're not giving to God. For some reason or the other, we're not giving that over to him. And he says to us this morning in this passage, everything belongs to me, so give it to me. So whatever thing that is in your life that you're holding back, I want you to think about it. I want you to identify it. Maybe the Spirit's already convicted you and shown you that. Maybe you need to ask him to show you. But then secondly, I want you to do this. As we sing this last song, we're going to repeat a phrase over and over, I surrender, I surrender. And what I want you to do is actually do what that song says. That that thing that you're holding back, that thing that you're not giving over to God, you are not in absolute surrender to him because you're holding something back. I want you, as you sing that phrase, I surrender, to do what it says, to do what you're singing, to surrender that thing to God. And I want you to walk out of here as not as someone who is like half-hearted, devoted to God and surrender to him. I want you to walk out of here as someone that's absolutely 100% surrender to the Lord because you realize everything in your life, including yourself, belongs to him. That's what Jesus is calling us to, and that's what I want us to do this morning. So with that in mind, let me pray and ask God to help us do just that. Father, we do thank you that your word calls us, God, to more than just paying taxes or do we not, God. That is a minor issue compared to the issue at stake, which is giving ourselves totally to you. And Lord, I know myself included and the people in this room, there are things in our lives that we are holding back, that we're afraid to give you. Maybe we're just disobedient and we're choosing not to give it to you. We don't want you to have it. God, I pray this morning you would loosen our grip on those things and you would let us give those things to you. And Lord, as we sing this phrase, I surrender, God, pray it's more than a phrase on a screen. God, more than just words from our lips, that it is the cry of our heart this morning that we would be absolutely surrendered to you God, everything, including ourselves, everything in our lives goes to you that we would surrender it. God, we can't do that on our own. We need your help. So please, in this time, spirit move. Let us let go of those things and surrender it to you. And in Christ's name, amen.